today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. New guidance from the National Agency uh, advising on immunization is now recommending racialized communities disproportionately affected by COVID-19 be prioritized in the second stage of this program as it rolls out. Uh, here's Global's Eric Sorensen with the details. As vaccines are ramping up, more Canadians will be lining up. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization is prioritizing who, in turn, should be vaccinated. Stage 1, underway now, includes residents and staff of congregant seniors' care homes, those over aged 80, followed by those over 75 and then over 70, frontline health care and personal support workers in contact with COVID patients, and adults in Indigenous communities most at risk. A large percentage from stage one should receive first shots from the six million doses expected to arrive by the end of March. There's a group there that they're not talking about and it doesn't seem to be prioritized. And I want to get into that as well. We're going to talk about the variants uh, in a couple of seconds. But first, let's uh, let's focus on the vaccine programs and the rollout of this. And uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Rodney Rohde. Uh, Dr. Rohde, of course, is a professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. And uh, always a welcome guest here. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill, from Frigid, Texas. <laughs> yeah, and well, happy it, birthday, sir. Happy birthday. Oh, word got down there, too, did it? Okay, thank word, you so much. Word got out. Did it, I yeah, word got out. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we thought we got dumped on here with snow in southern Ontario, and then I saw some of the, the video in the newscast uh, from from down there. My gosh. It, yeah, it's, it's definitely record-setting. I was watching the weather this morning. 75% of the lower states are or snow on the ground. That's just unbelievable. Ridiculous. Texas. Ridiculous. Major challenges with power outages. And stuff. So we're getting a little taste of your, of your life. <laughs> let's, let's talk about vaccines. A great piece, by the sure. way, in, in the conversation.com uh, that you wrote uh, that was published a couple of days ago. Uh, we'll talk about the variant in a couple of seconds, but you point out something sure. fa- very fascinating and, and it's something that the, the, our political leaders have, don't seem to be focusing on. Uh, and we just talked about prioritizing who's going to get this. And I think there's usually consensus. Yes, the frail, the elderly, the frontline workers, and, and that's happening uh, in varying stages and varying degrees, of course. But what about children vaccinated and the importance of children? That's that's the focus of, of what you wrote about here. Let's get into that just a little bit. Uh, we're talking about a significant portion of the population right now, and uh, they seem to be at the bottom of the list. Right, right. And it's kind of a kind of a nuanced answer, if you've read the article a little bit, but certainly just from the math, the numbers game of it is going to be a challenge because when you look at the United States, uh, about 65 million of our population, about 20% are under the age of 16. And when you start, you know, most experts, including myself, believe that with the new variants that are circulating, we might actually have to get up in the 70 to 80 to 90 percentile for herd immunity. And if you don't get children vaccinated, um, you know, you, it's almost a numbers game where you can't get there because the other data around even adults uh, that may not want to get it means we may only reach, you know, 50, 60 percent when you kind of do the math. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how quickly Moderna and Pfizer and, and forthcoming J&J and other companies can get uh, childhood safety data completed so that they can start approving vaccines, at least in some portion of kids under 16. Yeah, let's, I, I'm glad you brought that up because it was, it was one of the things that really struck me as I read the piece here. Um, because we just naturally assume that we're going to go down that list there and eventually we will get to kids. But we're not sure about the efficacy of this vaccine on those kids, are we? Because, I mean, the, the tests that were done, and we've talked a great length, you and I, over the last year or so about uh, what, how those tests are actually done and the stages they go through. Uh, children were never part of that. 
That's right. That's right. And that's that's kind of traditionally how something like this is done. Now, if it's something, if you go back in history and you're looking at something like, you know, childhood diseases specifically like diphtheria, uh, whooping cough, measles, mumps, those sorts of things, they probably start a little younger to try to get that efficacy data done quicker. But because they were targeting, you know, the elderly adult population who were dying mostly, obviously, from COVID, they started there. And so with adults, uh, when you're doing a kind of quick emergency use authorization, it only takes about two months of safety data. But with children, when you start looking at 16 and under, and that can change if you get really young, five and under, things like that, they start looking at six months of data. So it's likely, uh, now trials are happening. And you probably saw that in the piece. Both Moderna and Pfizer yeah. are doing these right now. But you know, just on a time on a time scale, it's probably going to be definitely the summer before we start thinking about vaccinating children. What would the end game be here? And I mean, you know, I, I just try to relate this to people that may not know much about vaccines. But I mean, even if you go and buy a jar of cough syrup, you know, if you cold season or everything, it says adult dosage, children dosage. In other words, it's, it's right. how much that you actually intake that it can have an impact. And and obviously, there's a concern about you know that any damage that can be done to a kid, for instance, if they take an adult dose of of any kind of medication at all. So, is the end game for Moderna and Pfizer here to to find out just what level they, they need? to actually put into the vaccine of all this stuff here? Or, or, or could they just say, you know what, it's cool the way it is? I mean, we, we don't know yet, do we? You know, I, I don't think we know, and a lot of times you're not going to see that particular um, kind of protected information between companies published. But I would imagine what they're primarily concerned about uh, is the safety data. So if you get, you know, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people under a certain age group, and what they do is once that vaccine occurs, and this is with adults as well, once you get it in their arm, uh, both doses, you watch them. And so you watch them not only for an adverse effect at the point of injection, but you watch it over six months uh, versus like, you know, six to eight weeks with an adult. So that's that's probably the primary priority as far as making sure it's safety data is there so that you feel like you can move forward. But that's an interesting question, Bill. I don't know if they tap down. For instance, the amount, I, I, I don't think so, because in an mRNA vaccine, basically they're putting mRNA into the body that is going to allow the body to create mm -hmm. uh, viral proteins. And so I don't know if it's going to be, there may be a dosage issue there. I actually don't know that answer. That's a great question, but I have a feeling what they're most concerned about is efficacy data. Is there any danger over you know six months with any type of reactions occurring? And we know there are more developments going on. I mean, we've talked about Pfizer and Moderna because they seem to be the ones on everybody's mind. But J&J &J is, is in the mix as well. Uh, can we assume, uh, Doctor, that, that that kind of research is going on with all of these people that are developing vaccines now? Absolutely. Especially, you know, in the developed world and elsewhere, I don't know of any country that is not going to look at that kind of data, whether you're talking about the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the AstraZeneca or others. So, I have no doubt that that type of safety effort is going forward with all vaccine manufacturers. I will circle around again to, to the numbers here as to why we're talking about this, because I, I know that some people are going to say, well, wait a second, why, why should kids even be a priority? Because it doesn't seem to have, the virus doesn't seem to have the same impact on, on kids. Uh, but as you point out in the piece, in the conversation, uh, they're still carriers. And, if, and we also know, by the way, that, yes, it, you know, children do get COVID-19. They may not, they may be asymptomatic, but, I mean, they're spreaders. Right. That's exactly right. So, I mean, as we've talked about before, I mean, children, young adults, you know, even college age, which are getting the vaccine, but 
those groups we know now, uh, and even up into a little older, are probably anywhere between, depending on the research you look at, between 30 and 50% of those people are asymptomatic carriers. So there's a lot of people, Bill, that if you don't get a vaccine in them and prevent them from getting an infection, you know, which subsequently will, will uh, stop that spread, if you don't get a vaccine in them, you could have a large proportion of the population spreading the virus. And if you think about childhood, you know, and school, and those types of situations, you could have, you know, incubation, you know, of all sorts of things going on in large populations of schoolrooms and, and other things like that. Uh, let's talk about the herd immunity thing, which you touched on here. And I was surprised when you, <laughs> some of the numbers that you, you found here uh, about the, the percentage of people that are simply saying we're not going to get the vaccine. Uh, the, the, right. There's the anti-vaxxers. We get that. But there's still a lot of skepticism and concern about this. And uh, as you say, that's going to have an impact on the numbers. I mean, you, uh, there's, a, uh, I guess, a debate right now about how, what percentage is going to have to be attained to actually get that herd immunity. Uh, but if it's upwards of 30 percent of people that aren't going to get vaccinated, that, that's a problem, isn't it? It really is. And we used in this article, I used one of the most recent national polls in the U.S. And, and, and we've seen this not only in the United States, but around the country, around the world, rather, uh, the, the anti-vax population are at least there's about 32 percent in this poll, 32 percent bill that say they either probably or definitely won't get inoculated. In other in other portions of that poll or a different poll, they say about half. 50% either won't get the vaccine unless they're required to or they want to wait and see. And so, you know, that's wherever you stand on this. The problem with that is that you cut into your potential ability to reach herd immunity. I mean, if you've got and just the math, if you just look at the math, and that's kind of what the article is about. If you've got mm-hmm. children not being vaccinated, which is 20%, that leaves 80% of the adults. But if you've got anywhere between 30 and 50% of adults that either don't want to do it or they want to wait, that doesn't leave a lot. <laughs> it leaves about, at most, 50% of the people that are going to be eligible to be uh, reaching herd immunity. So, you know, and, and, and again, as the article points out, I want to make sure the audience understands, vaccination is critical. Uh, 50% vaccinated is better than 0% vaccinated. It will certainly knock down deaths and, and, and morbidity and things like that. And, and, you know, many experts agree with that. But it will be difficult to reach herd immunity if we don't find a way to uh, convince and educate people that the vaccines are safe and useful and then to get it into the arms of children and other other vulnerable populations as we've talked about and as you point out in the piece uh, we're learning almost every day as we go along like this uh, even if you were to get that 70 to 90 percent whatever number it's going to end up to be uh, we don't know how long that that immunity is going to last right. do we uh, is it going to be forever yeah. is it going to be a year we don't know that's right. We really don't. And I, and if I was placing bets just based on, on my my expertise in past, it's it's not going to be forever. I would be you know very surprised. There's rarely a vaccine that gives us ten years of immunity. Some do, uh, but pretty rare. I would expect, uh, based on what's happening, is that if we're fortunate, it'll last you know up to a year or so. And then what's probably going to happen is that we'll either be developing um, new uh, kind of mixtures for those vaccines on an annual basis like we do the flu, or perhaps it'll be sooner. Uh, during the pandemic, we might need to respond sooner because of these variants. If they're driving, as you mentioned, kind of a third wave, we might want to, as we go, and that's the beauty of this mRNA technology, we may be able to tweak uh, these vaccines by summer, for example, and so that we can start putting new uh, variant 
protection into the vaccine so that we continue to tamp down that that rising wave. But I think I think what we're likely looking at is probably an annual type of uh, vaccination like you see with influenza. My hope my hope is that uh, we can actually combine those one day because, as you know, another another hurdle is when people have to take vaccine after vaccine after vaccine. So if you could have a combination of flu and COVID one day, that's one shot, you know, at some point in the year, that can be very useful, I think, as a um, kind of an acceptance piece. Absolutely. How concerned are you, Doctor, about the, the variants? Uh, I mean, some some of your colleagues are <laughs> suggesting, as Wayne mentioned, that this third wave is inevitable. It's already started in the U.K., uh, and, and it's very concerning. Uh, you know, we're hearing that it's it's more deadly, it's more contagious. Uh, it's the wild card in this whole equation here right now. What are your thoughts on that? It, it really is. You know, I am concerned. I'm concerned because any kind of virus that mutates, you're concerned, regardless of, of which virus it is, if it's causing uh, morbidity and mortality. I'm still hopeful, and, I'm, and a lot of experts are talking about this too, so far, so far, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine and some of the others to a lesser extent are still protecting individuals against these strains uh, to the extent that um, we believe it's going to protect enough to stop high mortality and severe illness. Uh, what people may have to do as we move along here is to keep in mind, and this is an education piece for all of us, is that sometimes and many times vaccines are not perfect, right? So the influenza vaccine on any given year might reach 60, 70% protection. But what it does, what it ultimately does is it drops down mortality problems in keeping people out of hospitals and things like that. You could get a light, light infection, light in, in quotes there. You know, it's not as a problematic. You don't go to the hospital. You might be down for two or three, four days, but it doesn't kill you. And so hopefully all the vaccines we're currently using uh, we'll continue to do that, but certainly we need to watch that data, uh, which includes public health surveillance around the world, you know, ramping up the sequencing of the different specimens that are coming in. That gets into my world. The testing is going to be critical as we move forward so that we watch. Um, we call it molecular epidemiology. So you're watching what's happening on the ground in real time as closely and quickly as you can. What variants are circulating? Is it becoming the dominant strain, for example, in Canada or the United States? And maybe you start tweaking a vaccine for a particular region of the world sooner versus other parts of the world so that you can keep an eye on supply and, and, and distribution and things like that. So it's a, it's a global effort. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to sing the praises of these companies that are, you know, behind all of this and moving forward. They've got a lot of work to do and a lot of quality work to do. So, you know, Kudos to them, and hopefully all governments can continue to support that effort. But it's got to make it more difficult, your job anyway, because this is a moving target. You really don't know at, at this stage. You're learning as you go along. It really is, Bill. I mean, I appreciate you saying that because one of the, one of the things that's difficult for someone like me, and there are many people out there doing this, you know, trying to do our best to, um, you know, a crystal ball. We're trying to do our best. Now, we do have the background and we have history to look at these, but covid SARS-CoV-2 is a new virus. We're learning as we go. And so it's it's sometimes difficult because sometimes people that aren't in this area might question that, you know, well, how how come this is happening? You know, last, you know, six months ago, you were telling us this was happening and now this is happening. And unfortunately, viruses do this. Viruses are the most diabolical microbes that we really know to mankind. And so if you're a virologist, you understand this. If you're not, you may be 
grumpy about it, you know, to say the <laughs> least, or frustrated that things are tra- changing. But that's exactly what viruses do. They are programmed to adapt to the human condition, to what we use in medicines, to what we use in vaccines. And that's what's so frustrating is that we just have to do our best to probably not get ahead of them, but to try to keep up with them. We certainly don't want to fall, you know, very far behind because that's when mortality rises. So we want to we want to play the game and try to, you know, at least get to that tie so that we're always right there with them so that we can prevent mortality. Uh, and just uh, as you say, as we're learning every day, I just saw some of the international numbers today and t- two countries that we can look to uh, that I think underscore exactly how important uh, what you're talking about it really is, is India and Israel uh, have not just yeah. flattened the curve. They're seeing steady decreases right now because they've hit that 75 to 80 percent of the population. They're not there yet, but I mean, the, the numbers are indicating that uh, they're on the right track. And that's obviously something we should be doing. Yeah, what phenomenal phenomenal stories if you look at Israel and I would encourage your audience to check out Israel and India to kind of look at that. Now there's there's a little difference. So in Israel, Israel kind of stepped up the plate and volunteered to, you know, begin vaccination as soon as possible, almost mm-hmm. as a as a testing ground. And so they are rocking and rolling with first dose and second dose uh, into the arms. So they're definitely moving towards um, you know, full population vaccination. They have about nine or I forget what, 13 million, I think 9 million are vaccinated. So, I mean, they're rolling along. Um, India is a little different. You know, that's a huge country. Uh, they had huge numbers of deaths and cases months ago, and it seems to be falling off. And a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads around that. And I read the, I read some of the instances and in research around that. And it sounds like what most people think are happening is um, some of it's vaccine based in the big urban centers. The other part is that the the rural areas are so spread out and distant from each other that you don't have a lot of, of opportunity for virus to spread quickly. So even if they're not vaccinated, it's going slowly in those areas. People work outdoors more, so you have less opportunity for the virus to uh, take. And then just overall, perhaps um, there is some truth to herd immunity, especially in the urban centers mm-hmm. where they've got a lot of people that have had the infection already. So, you know, it's it's a good problem, you know, for something like <laughs> India that has so many issues around uh, childhood disease and other types of diseases that they're having this kind of fall off of cases. It is. Uh, theconversation.com, you can check out the article there. Doctor, always a pleasure and uh, always entertaining and always educational to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Rodney Brody, of course, from uh, Texas State University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.